Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. So here's the first thing. Admit that your life is a mess. And second, and this one's a bit tougher, okay? You ready? Here it is. You don't want to get out of it. You do not want to get out of the mess. Talk to any psychologist who's worth his name and he'll confirm that. The last thing a client wants is a cure. He doesn't want to get cured. He wants relief. Eric Bernay, one of the great psychiatrists here in the United States, put it very graphically. He suggested you imagine a client who's up to his nose in a cesspool. He calls it liquid excrement. And he's coming to the doctor. And you know what he says to the doctor? Could you help me so that people don't make waves? The client does not want to get out of the cesspool. Oh, no, no, no. Get out. For heaven's sake, no. Just help me so they won't make waves. That's what he wants. He doesn't want to get out. You want to test that on yourself? I'll give you a couple minutes. You could do it right now. Okay, here goes. Suppose you could be blissfully happy, but you're not going to get that college degree. Are you ready to barter your degree for happiness? You're not going to get that girlfriend of yours or that boyfriend. Are you ready to barter them for happiness? Huh. How about this? You're not going to be a success. You're going to fail. Everyone is going to call you a bum. But you'll be happy. You'll be blissfully happy. Are you ready to barter the good opinion of other people for that? I'll give you time to think about it later. When I was in Syracuse last summer, I saw something in the newspaper. It was an advertisement showing a girl holding on to a boy, and she says, I don't want to be happy. The only happy people I know are in a lunatic asylum. I want to be miserable with you. See what I mean? I don't want to be happy. I want to be miserable with you. She'll develop a theology about the damn thing after a while. People don't want to get out of it. They don't want it. I don't want happiness. I want fame. And I don't want happiness. I want to get that gold medal at the Olympics. Suppose I tell you, look, give up the gold medal. You'll be happy, damn it. What do you want that gold for anyway? Why do you want to be at the top, the boss of the corporation? I'll make you happy. On $10,000 a year, I'll make you happy. It's from the 80s, so you probably have to adjust for inflation. It's probably like 36K now. Return the text. 
No, 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 no. Give me my money, my money, my money, my money. See what I mean now? Now you're catching on. People don't want to be happy. I'll tell you what it means to live like a king. To know no anxiety at all. To have no inner conflict at all. No tensions. No pressures. No upset. No heartache. So then, what are you left with? Happiness. Undiluted. People sometimes say, what do I do to be happy? You don't do anything to be happy, silly. It shows how bad your education has been if you think you've got to do something to be happy. You don't have to do anything. You can't acquire happiness. You know why? Because you have it. You've got it right now. But the whole time you're blocking it with your stupidity. You're blocking it. Stop blocking it and you'll have it. If I could show you how to get rid of your conflicts, your anxieties, your tensions, your pressures, your emptiness, your loneliness, your despair, your depression, your heartache. If you could get rid of all of that, what are you left with? Sheer, undiluted happiness. That's what you would have. The Chinese put it beautifully. When the eye is unobstructed, they say, the result is sight. Don't do anything to get sight. When the eye is unobstructed, the result is sight. When the ear is unobstructed, the result is hearing. When the mouth is unobstructed, the result is taste. When the mind is unobstructed, the result is truth. And when the heart is unobstructed, oh, the result is joy and love. You've got it all, but it's obstructed. You can drop it. So, the second major step, recognize that you don't want to get out of it. You want comfort. You want your little possessions. You want the little things that society has falsely taught you are essential for happiness. You want that. You don't want to get out of the mess. Those are the things that are creating the mess. I'm going to give you something to think about. Has it ever occurred to you that what you call your happiness is really your chain? For example, are you calling somebody your happiness? As in, you are my joy. It could be your marriage, your business, your degree, your job, whatever. In whom do you find your happiness? Whatever the answer is, that is your prison. Oh, 
that is harsh language, but reflect on these words. And here's the third thing. Your life is in a mess because you have wrong ideas. It's not because there's anything wrong with you. You're okay. I'm okay. You're okay. We're all okay. We're great. There's nothing wrong with us. But they, they put the wrong ideas in our heads. Somebody did. We needn't spend too much time trying to catch the culprit. But anyway, we have the wrong ideas. You know, if somebody has given you a stereo set, then you received a manual of instructions along with it. Well, they didn't give us a manual when they gave us the gift of life. Or, let's put it another way. They gave us the manual of instructions, but it was all wrong. So, you're not getting music. You're getting scratchy sounds. You're getting upset. You're getting conflict. You're getting loneliness. You're getting emptiness. Oh, it's right there in the Bible, the Quran, the Hindu texts, the Buddha. Every few, but very few people read it. They think they do, but they miss the point. I missed the point. Maybe I'm an unusually big idiot. But I discovered lots of company. They missed the point too. They didn't get it. All right, so what is the point? Now, there are many ways of putting forth the formula. I'm going to give you the simplest I've found. I'm going to give it to you in the words of old Buddha. Why did I choose him? Because his words are the simplest of all. But you find the formula everywhere. It's proclaimed with clarity. You're probably going to disagree with it. But you can't miss the point. You ready? Here it is. The world is full of sorrow. The root of sorrow is desire. The uprooting of sorrow is desirelessness. Oh, I'm imagining your faces. It's wonderful. You're thinking, that's great. That's great. But then you're thinking, wrong. That's awful. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful? Because I know how I used to react to this. The world is full of sorrow. Great. Right. Agreed. The root of sorrow is desire. Well, all right. Now, what are you going to conclude? The uprooting of sorrow is desirelessness. So what? I'm going to be a vegetable? I mean, how do we live without desires? Let me give you a better translation. I don't think the Buddha would have been so foolish and stupid as to say that we ought not have any desires, for heaven's sake. I wouldn't be speaking if I didn't have the desire to speak. You wouldn't be here if you didn't have the desire to come and hear me. So let's give it a better translation. The world is full of sorrow. 
the root of sorrow is attachment. The uprooting of sorrow means the uprooting, the dropping of attachments. You know, there are desires on whose fulfillment my happiness does not depend. In fact, you've got lots of desires on whose fulfillment your happiness does not depend. Or else you'd be climbing walls. You'd be nervous wrecks. We, all of us, have two types of desires. We've got some desires. We desire all kinds of things. And gee, we're happy to get them. But when we don't get them, it's okay. Too bad. We're not unhappy. But we've got other desires. Good Lord, if we don't get them, we're going to be miserable. That's what I mean by attachment. Where do you think all conflicts come from? Attachment. Where do you think greed comes from? Attachments. Where do you think loneliness comes from? Attachments. And where do you think emptiness comes from? You got it. Same calls. Where do you think fear comes from? Attachments. No attachments. No fear. Ever thought of that? No attachments. No fear. Attachment is the enemy of love. You see, you're really confronting a choice between life and death. And what people call life is frequently death though they don't know it. And you mean to tell me that if you've got attachments, you think you can love? The biggest enemy of love is attachment. Desire in the sense of attachment. You know why? Because if I desire you, I want to possess you. I can't leave you free. I've got to get you. I've got to manipulate you so that I can get you. If I desire you in this way, I'm going to manipulate myself so I can hoodwink you into allowing me to get you. Are you following what I'm saying? There is no fear in perfect love. You know why? Because there is no desire. Now, Ask your culture. I've asked mine. Ask your culture if they can make any sense out of this. Where there is love, there is no desire. That's desire in the sense of attachment. You know, you know what they will tell you? But attachment is love. That's how stupid we are. Expecting to find life here can find only death and misery in attachment. Such a simple, such a sublime, such an extraordinary thing. I run into people of all kinds, religious and non-religious people, people who are atheists or whatever, and Catholics or lay people, priests and sisters and bishops, and I rarely run into someone who knows what love is.
they all got the wrong instructions. Attachment means I got to get you. It means without you, I will not be happy. If I don't get you, I won't be happy. I cannot be happy without you. There, you've got the formula for divorce. There, you've got the formula for quarrels. There, you've got the formula for friendships falling apart. I cannot be happy without you. I need you for my happiness. By damn, I'll do everything to manipulate you, to get you. Love means, on the other hand, love means I'm perfectly happy without you. It's all right. It means, and I wish you good, and I leave you free, and when I get you, I'm delighted. And when I don't, I'm not miserable. Well, what do you know? I have learned to be self-sufficient. I'm standing up on my own two feet, not leaning on you. And you know, if I get money, that's wonderful. But if I don't get money, I'm not depressed. I'm still happy. You know something else? When you go away, I don't. And maybe it's too soon to say this here, but I'll risk it. When you go away, I don't miss you. I don't feel pain. Where there is sorrow, there is no love. Tell me, when you grieve, whom are you grieving for? Who's loss? Grieving is self-pity. Oh, don't call it that. You're telling the truth now. Here's a secret, here's a secret formula for you. If you were not actively engaged in making yourself miserable, you would be happy. You see, we were born happy. All of life is shot through with happiness. Oh, there's pain, of course. There's pain. Who told you that you can't be happy with pain? Come and meet a friend of mine who's dying of cancer. She's happy and in pain. So we were born happy. We lost it. We were born with the gift of life. And we lost it. We've got to rediscover it. Why did we lose it? Because we were at working actively. They taught us to work actively, to make ourselves miserable. How did they do that? By teaching us to become attached. By teaching us to have desires so intense that we would refuse to be happy unless they were fulfilled. The tragedy is that you need <clears throat> the tragedy is that all you need to do is sit down for 2 minutes and just watch how untrue that assumption is. 
that you would be unhappy without A or B or X or Y or whatever. You know something? You won't sit. Because if you sit, you might see it. You won't sit and look at it. I know I wouldn't. I resisted it for years. You mean, if I don't get Mary or I don't get John, I won't be happy. Hey, wait a minute. Come to think of it, you're right. Before I met her or before I met him, I was happy. You know something? I once fell in love with somebody and then, well, I lost her. I was heartbroken. And what happened? I'm all right now. So she wasn't my happiness. Remember the time that you were a child and you lost something and you thought, I'll never be happy without this. What happened? If we gave it to you today, you wouldn't even look at it. Thank you. Family and friends, enemies and allies, the minimalist. Cheers. What's up, y'all? Thanks for being here. This is awesome. Yeah. How about Kelly's little sound yeah. bath to start us off? Give it up for Kelly. Yeah. Oh, that was stunning. We were backstage and TK, you were like, any future event, she has to be here. Yeah, I was like, no more future events if she's not. <laughs> Let's talk a bit about that reading. Um, I wanted to start off with that because... I wasn't really reading it to you. It's like me reading it to myself as a reminder, and you just happen to be here to witness it. But I think this is the thing that we all struggle with. People come to us because of consumerism, but that's a type of attachment. We're seeking to fill the void, the emptiness, and we don't realize that what we're actually doing is widening the void, making things worth, creating new attachments in our lives. So initial impressions on... What I just read there. By the way, that was from Anthony DeMello. Yeah, I mean, when you were reading, I was thinking about how I, I agree, like the more we attach ourselves to things, the the more we open ourselves up to being disappointed, hurt, angry, sad, all the all the negative emotions. Um, I started to think how attachments is really, it's kind of a synonym with expectation, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean... I loved the distinction he made. Like we have these two types of desires and maybe if I were to break it down a little bit, I would say the attachment has to do with the expectation. I want a particular outcome. And if I don't get that outcome, I don't get that person, that paycheck, that job, that accomplishment, that trophy, that car, that dress, whatever it might be, then I'm miserable. I will be unhappy, right? That's an expectation, right? But then there's this other type of desire, which is just like, 
this is compelling, or I'm attracted to this. It could be writing for someone, but it, whenever I write, it has very little to do with the outcome. In fact, whenever my writing becomes outcome-based, like a publisher is like, you must turn in this book by the, it makes the writing miserable because all of a sudden you're now attaching an expectation to it. But there's this other side where it's like, oh, I'm just really attracted to this. Like these events, we've been super attracted to doing these events and that's why we do it. Yeah, I think it maps on very well to the distinction between consumption and creativity because consumption is always about going after something that is outside of myself and depending upon it for my survival, whereas creativity is about bringing forth something that is within. And that's a very different kind of joy. I need that or I will die versus there's something I must express because this is what makes me come alive. And consumption is valid for some things, right? I do need water, I do need food, or I will die. But the advertising industry convinces us that that is also true of a host of other things. I need that product or I will socially die. I need that car or I will professionally die. And they orient us towards consumption, feeling like I need something outside of myself to be a player in the game of life. And the joy of being human is to tap into that creativity because that's what makes us human, right? It's what is within me that I need to bring forth as a way of saying, hey, I'm here. This is an artifact or an experience that represents my joy. Yeah, it's like all the, all the little bits of input we get with advertisements, you know, the five to 10,000 10, ads that we see a day. It's like it muddles that, that genuine um, desire for what you want to put out there. I, I'm like so fascinated with the AI stuff. Um, it's like I love talking about it and thinking about it. I think like we're in a really cool time right now and it, it'll either like save everyone's lives or it will kill us all. I'm, 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 I'm voting for the for, the, for, uh, the the former. Um, I, uh, but I was, I was reading an article the other day about how the AI is going to get so good. It's already there. They have apps that do this, but just with the camera, they can like look at your pupils. They can look at how wide your eyes are. Like they can get so much data just from some like biometric stuff that they get from the camera and they will start to, Manipulate, manipulate you and you won't even realize it. Wait, what do you mean? Like it's reacting to your, your, um, your bios. So like it, it will start to feed you things based upon the mood that you're in, essentially. They're going to take over the world. Yeah. <laughs> but and, but and, I, I'm, well, go ahead. What you're saying there is, is exactly what I was reading here, but it's amplified tremendously, right? And that's why it's important we understand this because when we feel these broken expectations when we um, feel incomplete because we don't have something like we have to understand like that, that tug of uh, you know, that the, the ad agencies have on us. Like we really have to be clear that um, our desires are our desires, not something that has been fed to us. Right. And it's, and it's hard to differentiate that. And it's only going to get harder. I had a weird realization. I was walking over here. I stayed at a hotel last night um, and I was just walking over here. It's a very long walk. And as I was walking, the thought that popped into my head, and I was hoping we'd have an opportunity to talk about it, but it echoes exactly what you're saying here is, and this is hard to say, but I think it's true. You will never get what you want. And let me expand on that a little bit because we often think we want something, but it's not what we want. It's what someone else wants for us. Now, advertisers are 
it's easy to make them the boogeyman, which we often do. You know, we think advertisements suck. We don't like advertisements. And, and yet, so the desires that we have become these mimetic desires. I saw it in a magazine or I saw an influencer wearing it or I saw it on YouTube or I just saw someone walking down the street and they looked good in that shirt or with that purse or whatever it was and now I want it. The thing that I didn't even realize was available to me, I feel like I couldn't live without it now. I want it so much. Okay, that's one kind of want. And we all know, intellectually, like getting that isn't going to complete me or whatever. But there are some deeper things that you truly want. And you'll get them sometimes. But when I say you won't get what you want, because what the thing you want is never actually the thing you want. The thing you want is the feeling that is behind the thing, right? The promotion, the consumer purchase, the relationship. You want the feeling behind that. Even some virtuous pursuits. Oh, I really want to contribute to my community. I want to build wells in Africa. I want to build orphanages, right? Great. But the thing you want is actually behind the thing that you want. And the problem with getting what you want is we try to hold on to that thing. And if you hold on to the thing, that you wanted, you got it. But as you hold on to it, you cling to it, what happens? You cease to want it. In fact, it becomes a burden. I had the weirdest dream last night. I was uh, walking around with this giant, it wasn't like a boulder, but it was a very big rock about the size of one of these balloons up here. It was a, just a heavy rock. And in the dream, Ryan was there. Was my shirt on? <laughs> Was a, that was a different dream. Oh. A fantasy, one might say. You have to be asleep for a dream. <laughs> we are bifurcating. <laughs> I was carrying this giant, I was walking, carrying this giant rock around. And Ryan just shows up on the street and I'm carrying it. And he's like, hey man, that looks heavy. This is just last night. I said, yeah, it is. He goes, why'd you pick it up? I said, I needed to pick it up. He goes, okay. He goes, you know you can set it down. And it was just this revelation like, I can set this down. But that isn't that true with the expectations you were talking about. Yeah. Well, because the whole time you're reading that, I was thinking about all the expectations I've had in my life and the different attachments and the desires and things that I've chased. And so many of them, like I hadn't, I didn't even realize I picked them up. And it's easy to say and easy to understand if you want to be truly happy, which happiness is even, we could talk about that for an hour, but for the, for the, the sake of the, the, the context here, like to be happy, you have to let go of all your desires, let go of all your attachments. Easy to say, easy to understand, but shit, man, we pick them up so so many times without even realizing that we're doing it. And it's not until we start to feel that discontent, that whatever negative emotion it's creating, that then we have the opportunity to kind of let it go rather than try to, it's, I think it's harder to, to try and not pick up any because it's just, they just happen naturally. And, and that was the thing in the dream. Yes, 
I knew I was carrying it, but didn't really realize that I had picked it up. That I, it was just a part of my everyday walking at that point. And yes, I knew I had it, but I didn't know what it was doing to me. But as soon as you see that attachment, that expectation for what it is, that's the only time you can actually let it go. I remember our last Sunday symposium, there was a woman in the back. She asked a question about how do I let go of something? I don't remember what it was. And my answer was, hey, the microphone you're holding, if that was a snake, would you be asking me how to let it go? And she said, well, no. I said, well, what would you do? Because she wouldn't come to anyone and say, I need help letting this go. I need a three-step plan, a method, a technology, whatever. No, because as soon as you see the problem, that's when you have the ability to actually drop it. And that's why I wanted to read that, that intro today. Uh, Robert Fritz, in, in a very excellent book called uh, The Path of Least Resistance, he talks about this idea of how we typically rely on a process to give us the faith to move our lives towards a result. And so we say, unless I have a way to lose weight, I'm not going to lose weight. And so we wait on someone to provide us with a process, and then we make the decision to lose weight. And he says, it is the decision about the what that gives rise to the how. It's not until you decide, I'm going to be healthy, I'm going to quit smoking, I'm going to increase my income, whatever it may be, that you actually get a process that can take you there. But if you seek permission from processes, what will happen is you'll always find something missing in the process because there is no process that's created for you, right? Processes have to be created by you as a result of committing to some end result. But I wanted to get back to that desire thing because uh, my wife, Shelly, and I, we like to watch a lot of true crime. And we were watching this. Uh, we, we like to get into arguments over like what's going to happen and like who did it and stuff like that. And in another life, we would be uh, private, private detectives or lawyers or something like that. We, maybe in this life, who knows? I always try and convince my wife, Bex, to, um, to go out on stakeouts with me. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to sit in the car and like spy on people. I don't know what that says about me. I don't, I don't want a particular outcome. I just want to, I just want to watch you. That might be a true crime documentary unto itself. <laughs> so there, there's this one about this con artist, and I think it's something like chasing the ghost. And he manages to convince so many people that he's like this spy and so on. And so there's this one family where he's, uh, the mother has two, uh, uh, two kids, and they're both kind of like teenagers. And, and he moves in. He gets really close to the mother. The father's already separated, but everyone's on amicable terms. And what he needs to do is alienate the children from their father in order to further his efforts at manipulation. And so every single day he tells the daughter, he says, you don't like your father, do you? And, you know, she's just like, yeah, I like my dad. But every day he says it to her. You don't really like your father, do you? Yeah, you don't really like him. And she's the one telling the story. And she says every single day, multiple times a day, she's got this man saying, you don't like your father, do you? Yeah, I can tell you don't like your father. And at some point it just clicked and she internalized that and was just like, yeah, I don't really like my dad. And the dad was out of the picture and he was able to entrench himself further into the family and eventually separate the mother from the children and then just take his manipulation even further. But it just sort of illustrates in this really powerful and tragic way how easily we can internalize someone else's value system, 
someone else's likes and dislikes. And we see it playing out every day when we go to social media and we say, hey, uh, who should I be angry at? Who, who should I be offended by? Who should I hate today? Who should I be afraid of today? And social media is like really good at, at studying what you click on and what makes you feel emotion, which is why whenever you say things like, hey, everybody, no one pay attention to this. This made me so mad today. The machine says, thank you for your business, because it doesn't care if you give it attention based on hate or based on love. You know, it's like if I'm going through the grocery store and I, you know, see something, I go, ugh. That's gross. And I put it in my cart and pay for it. The company's like, thank you for your business. They don't care if I bought it out of hate. And that's what we do, right? We just put everything into our cart. But social media is really good at like catering to our taste. And it'll say, hmm, okay, I see what you're clicking on. Hey, check this out. Here's a video of five black people jumping this white kid and calling him racial slurs. You over there, here's a video of five white people jump in this black kid and calling them racial slurs. I'm going to separate you all and put you in this world. And I'm going to put you in this virtual world because I need you to be scared of them. And I need you to be scared of them. I need you to think this person's great. I need you to think this person's evil. And every day we get fed these stories because we're not creating our own news. We're not informing ourselves based on our own priorities and our own principles, but we're getting our instructions from this world that is incentivized to get us to behave in any way that feeds the machine. And so we have all of these desires and all of these values that don't even belong to us. And how long until we wake up and say, wait a minute, none of these dreams are even mine. None of these fears are even mine. None of these questions that are holding me back are even mine. I don't need those answers. Those are somebody else's questions. I can be free to live my life with what I know and what I don't know. I think it's, I totally agree with everything you just said. I think in some ways it's even more pernicious than that because I think that if you are consuming content on social media, to use some really vapid phrases, um, like whatever happened to reading or listening, it's, it's consuming content. Like even our approach to engaging the world is very machine-like. Anyway, go ahead. A friend of mine pointed out something at our studio. There's, our, our neighbor is a general contractor, the construction company there, and uh, he has a sign up for UPS. And on there, it says, content has no value. And uh, that's a quite uh, the, the, the profound message. <laughs> But uh, I think it just meant that you can leave these boxes here at my doorstep. They're not worth anything. <laughs> anyway, with, with social media, <laughs> I was like, yeah, you're right. Yeah, <laughs> content does have no value. That's why I never post anything. Um, but I think that it's even worse than, hey, if you like it and you click on it, that's one thing. But if you hate it, it's the same thing. I would say, well, no, because if you truly are at peace you're probably going to turn off the app or turn off the phone or set it down. But if you're yearning for more, 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 the disease of more, I need more dopamine, I need more attention, I need more clicks, whatever it might be, you get that through discontent. And so, in a way, social media incentivizes discontent. It incentivizes our unhappiness. And it incentivizes us seeking out those things 
Because we confuse the dopamine rush with happiness. And then it becomes this digital prison that we have in our pockets and we carry around with us every day. Well, that makes me think about the reading that you did and how the, so like Twitter and Facebook, all the other social media companies, they don't, they don't say, they don't meet in a boardroom and they're like, okay, we're going to feed everyone angry, sad things today. Right. It is a algorithm that, that just pairs with us and our, and what we view and what we continue to come back to. And so it makes me think about the reading because if all we're getting in our social media feeds are the things that we're talking about right now, that's because we want it. It's because we are feeding it that information. So of course it's going to give us that stuff. And if I was to ask, you know, um, someone who super politically charged, angry, if I asked them like, do you want to be angry all the time? They would probably say, no, I don't, but it's just unfortunate how the world is. You know, it just makes me angry. I have to, they make me angry. Right. Yeah. It's, which is like the biggest lie, right? Because no one here has the power to make me angry. Only I can anger myself, right? In reaction to this perceived injustice that I see from you. It's, it's really fascinating. Most of my favorite guests on the Minimalist podcast are the ones who are the most controversial. And oftentimes, I don't even realize they're controversial until Jessica starts sending me all the comments for, on, on the particular episode. And I'm like... Oh wow, that medical doctor um, was really con- I didn't didn't have any idea or that that psychiatrist was really controversial. I didn't know people didn't like her. And uh, people get really really upset and outraged and the reason they do is they think that I and Ryan and TK upset them. It is our fault that they are upset. How dare us. Like I came to their house with a bucket of discontent and said, "Here you go. Hold on to this." But it's kind, it's kind of like that rock that I was carrying in the dream, right? Because the truth is that if I carry that rock over and hand it to TK, I can hand it to him. He can choose to, to take it from me. But from what he does with it from there is totally up to him. He can set it down. He can run around with it. He can complain to me that I handed him this damn rock and why would you do this to me? If, if we were friends, you wouldn't hand me a boulder. You wouldn't do this to me. Like, oh man, I thought you wanted it. <laughs> why don't you just, just set it down? But we choose to be silent about our pain. You know, uh, who was it? Uh, Zora Neale Hurston said, if, if you are silent about your pain, people will kill you and say you enjoyed it. That's what happens when you give other people power over your narrative. I, I uh, have a question for you guys, though, based on what you just said. Um, if we don't want this, why do we choose it? So like, if, if social media is showing me things that are a reflection of what I'm choosing, but you ask me in theory, do I want to be angry today? My answer is no. Why am I choosing that? Why do we choose things we don't want? I think that's the million dollar question, man. I think that's why Josh read that reading is because it, it is hard to understand. I mean, of course, no one wants to be angry, but that algorithm is reflecting what you want. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. I, I think the first line that I, that I started with was, uh, you don't want to get out of this mess. And I think that's why. Ultimately, because getting out of the mess means letting go of all of these attachments, these expectations, these false desires, these beliefs, these opinions that make us who we are. 
One of my favorite quotes is from Ram Das, and someone was asking him, this woman was asking him a question in, one, in a setting not dissimilar from this, and she said, I'm just trying to find what aligns with my personality. I'm trying to find the activities that align with my identity. And he said, oh, that's cute. <laughs> you think you have an identity. Mm. And yes, we have identities, but we've created them. They're, 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 they're self-contained, and we adorn ourselves with business titles. Here's, the, here's what it says on my business card. Here's who I am. What do you do is the first question we ask someone when we meet them. And they give you a business title, or they tell you what they enjoy, or I'm a mother, I'm a father. You go to the, someone's bio on Twitter, and it says... Uh, Husband, father, Christian, author, whatever. And it, all of a sudden, it's like, well, is that all you are? No, obviously not, right? And there's nothing wrong with those things and understanding something about a person, but they're approximations of who we are. They're not who we actually are. Uh, Ken Wilber does a, a lot of work on this. Uh, he calls it no boundary awareness, where he talks about basically whenever we um, say, this is who I am, or this is what I am, we're essentially drawing a boundary around us that says, I am not that, right? So a self-definition is a way of saying what you are not. When I say, I am TK, uh, I am a black American male, or I am a Christian, or I am from Chicago, I'm telling what I'm not. I am not Josh. I am not that desk. I am not an inanimate object, right? Um, I am not a child. And the funny thing about these boundary lines is that over time, we find that they're far more negotiable than we typically expect. We say things like, I'm just not a people person. I'm just not a normal, I'm just not a, um, a normal person, Freudian slip. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I'm just not a morning person, right? But then maybe you get this job that requires you to get up at five in the morning, or maybe you marry someone or you have children and it requires you to make adjustments and you realize, oh, this quality I accepted to be as you know, part of my self-definition, it's actually quite negotiable, and I'm glad to let it go. And over time, you find that that boundary line gets bigger and bigger, and the question that Ken Wilber is always challenging us to ask ourselves is, where does that boundary line really end? And, and why should we assume that it has an end? And maybe it does, but the end might not be the same as where it happens to fall right now, because life is always challenging us to do that. One other thing I wanted to say about the desire question is um, there's an important economics concept that I think can help with these sorts of things. And it's basically what's called stated versus revealed preference. And stated preference is what a person says they want. So you find out people's stated preferences when you conduct surveys. Like, hey, if this guy ran for office, would you vote for him? Yeah. If Ryan became a rock star and had a concert tomorrow night, would you go? Yeah. yeah. If. <laughs> right, so stated preference is what I genuinely feel I would do. Revealed preference is what I actually choose when scarcity or sacrifice is involved. So stated preference is basically if I had the power to wave a magic wand and give you whatever you wanted without any cost or responsibilities or sacrifices on your end, would you say yes to it? That's basically what stated preference is. And it doesn't mean that we're lying. It just means people make different choices when there's no sacrifice or responsibility involved. 
And the choices we make in life are not a reflection of what we want in theory, but they're a reflection of what we're willing to sacrifice or prioritize. So right now, in this moment, my stated preference is, I want ice cream right now. And I'm not lying. In this moment, I want ice cream. And that's real. But in order to make that happen, I have to do something. And I have, to, I have to take a risk of some kind. I got to go, hey, guys, I'm really loving this show right now. <laughs> but can you give me like a 15-minute break and I'll be back? I got to go get some ice cream. And it's like, hmm. When I compare my desire for ice cream with what's entangled in that, I'm going to say no to it today at this time, right? And so our life is a reflection of our priorities, not our preferences. It's not our wishes. It's not the things that we say we want but it's what we're willing to choose when we have to let something else go. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, hey, I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> now, you know, going back to like, At least he didn't say, please clap. Right. <laughs> please clap. Not to get political up here. <laughs> um, going back to the question you asked about why do we hold on to these things that we don't want? It has something to do with the cost of letting it go and living in a different world. Yes. Because I, I think back to like when I was raised Jehovah's Witness, I loved knowing how the world worked. How do we get here? Let me tell you. <laughs> Why are we here right now? Oh, I got answers for that. You want to know where we're going? You each get your own planet, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. No, that's, that's the other religion. Oh, yeah. Sorry. But, but the thing, like when I was disconnecting from that though, it was very difficult because when, when you have an understanding of how the world works and we all want that, um, and when you're so sure about it and then, it, and, it, and then it starts to crumble a little bit, it's like, I, I, I had a choice. It was like, do I go even, do, you know, go more all in with it or do I like start to let it unravel a little bit and to go more all in was very tempting. It's like picking up more of those rocks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, religion or not, political, whatever situation people are choosing to make themselves miserable in, it has, it has to do with, I think, that's their worldview. And to, to, to look at it any other way is risking their, it's, it's risking them being right. Like they, they don't want to be, no one wants to be wrong about how they look at the worldview. So if they start to look at it in a different way, they are giving up that certainty. And if they've been wrong the whole time, cause I went through it. I mean, at 25 years old, I'm like, fuck, like I have been like just bullshitting me and everyone else for the last 25 years. It's hard to admit that. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is why we have to be so careful with trying to change other people. Even if we are convinced that the advice we have for them is better than the ideas they're currently acting on. I'm not saying you can never exercise influence, but you got to be very careful because people's ideas are not just these theoretical beliefs they have. They're not just answers that they would give on a philosophy test or a theology exam. People's worldview holds their whole self together. They build their family life around these worldviews, their daily routines around these worldviews. And if you take something away from someone, What are you going to replace that with? And people have to grow and evolve in their own time and at their own pace, not because your ideas you want to influence with them with don't matter, 
but because everyone needs to go at a different pace with integrating new insights into their worldview. Because if you ask someone to change too quickly, you might destroy them. There is no such thing as a piece of advice that is so good that it can't be abused or misapplied in a way that actually makes your life worse. And that's why we have to be careful. Related, I saw a friend on Facebook post the following. I'm going to paraphrase it because I can't quote it, but he says something to the effect of, I got together with a friend of mine the other day, and this friend is someone who claims to be religious, but sometimes I see him living in ways that are not consistent with his religion. And there are other days I see him living in a very noble and devout way. And I had a moment where I wanted to call him out on it, but I also knew that if he discovers the truth for himself and sees it for himself, he'll be more likely to make the improvements. So instead, I looked at him, I told him that I loved him, and I asked him if I could pray with him. And after that, I winked at him and decided to walk away from the mirror. <laughs> well, thank you all for coming today. Let's open it up for some questions. I see Malabama Roman somewhere. Where is she? She's sneaking in the back. Hi, uh, everybody. Ladies and gentlemen, Malabama. Yeah. <laughs> so we're really here for you. So whatever uh, questions you might have, if you want to talk about why you're here today or what I your expectations are, Mallory will uh, take care down, of you. Hi there. My name is Barbara. Hey, Barbara. And I just want to say thank you. Um, I think I've always had minimalist tendencies, but until I discovered your work, I didn't know what to call them. So <laughs> thank you for that. Thank but you. Um, it's given me a set of um, foundational principles, just some fundamentals, fundamentals to guide me. And it's helped me as I've gone through the journey of being a cancer patient. It's helped me um, in... Um, settling my mother's estate after she passed away and disposing of her things and selling our childhood home. And um, more recently, it has um, given me uh, a lens to look through when um, my most valued possessions in this world were stolen and coming to terms with the fact that, yeah, the physical things may be gone, but, you know, I still have the memories and what they signified. And um, it just helps me every day. It helps me to know when I um, everything is right in my world and when everything is not right and I need to delve into the why of that. And it's helping me plan my next vacation. So it's, <laughs> I just wanted to say thank you and give a shout out of gratitude because I appreciate your work. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Anyone else have a question? Uh, I saw your hand up first. Could you slide this one down? We're passing the mic down. It could be like a game of telephone. They could say what their question is to the person next to them. By the end of it, it's like, boxers or briefs? Hi, my name is Candy, and um, we have an organizing business, so we go into many people's homes. And I have to say, when I leave people's homes, most of them have way too much. 
And I always send them a link to your Netflix documentary because um, I think I've seen it many times over and over again. And um, I just want to say I love you guys and you have helped me. I listen to your podcast all the time as well. And you've helped me deal with clients that have attachment to things and um, how to try and convince them that it's okay to let go. And just want to say love you all and thank you very much. Thank you, Kate, Likewise. <laughs> thank you so much. The thing about organizing, it's well-planned hoarding. And the professional organizers know this best because whenever we amateurs try to organize our homes, we usually just go to like Walmart or the container store or Home Depot and I'm going to buy a bunch of bins to hide my attachments. But the attachments don't go away. They fester. They grow, right? Because what we're doing is, oh, out of sight, out of mind. And that's partially true. But we also have to get the things out in the open. And that's what professional organizers can help people do. Because the easiest way to organize your stuff is to simply get rid of it. I love how they're just like professional declutterers in disguise. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I saw a hand towards the middle. Yeah, perfect. Howdy. What's your name? Chantel. Hey, Chantel. Hi. Uh, so one of the favorite things of mine that you've ever said, and I'm going to butcher it, but was that if it takes longer for you to recover from the time that you spend with someone than it is the time that you spend with them, they're not the right people in your lives. Something like that. Um, and I've recently gone no contact with my mother for that reason. And I just going into this idea about attachment and expectations, just that's something that I have really struggled with. The expectations that I had for my relationship with her and almost the morning of that not being what I really hoped for. So I just wondered if you had any thoughts about it. Oh, I love talking about my issues with my mother. <laughs> Ryan, you hate your dad, don't you? You could fill a barn with the people I hate. We have. <laughs> oh, I kid, I kid. He loves you, I think. But he doesn't need you for happiness. And I, yeah. And I love my mom, and I love my dad. Um, so, with my mother, uh, she was a bad mom. It's just as simple as that. And I held a lot of resentment towards her. Um, same thing with my uh, stepdad. He was even a worse you know, stepdad than my mom was a mom. And uh, I separated myself from uh, having contact with them for the most part. I'd see him every once in a while. And I, I think it was like probably four or five years ago that I just had this, I don't know, I was having this internal dialogue where I'm like, I was kind of, complaining about the situation I had growing up. And then there was like this, you know, this voice that was like, why do you think you deserved anything different? Why do you think you were entitled to anything different? And I'm like, oh, like that's an interesting thought because it isn't, it's an expectation. It's, it's an entitlement that I had that wasn't being met. So now I, I, I you know, used to very much dislike my mother and, and my stepdad. And then the next thing I thought was how, um, you know, I was 36 years old when I had this thought and, and my mom had me at 22 and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, you know, your mom was 22 when she had you. 
like she didn't really know what she was doing. Like you're 36 year old, 36 years old. Do you know what you're doing? And I, I'm like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Like I know, I know some of the stuff I'm doing, but like there's a lot I don't know what I'm doing. So for me to have that expectation of my mother to have it figured out at 22 and how to raise me correctly until, you know, I moved out of the house. Like that was, uh, I felt it to be unfair. And ultimately I just kind of came to the conclusion that like, there's nothing written in the fabric of the universe that says we deserve good parents. We want it, but like, there's nothing that says that that's what we're entitled to. And when I started to look at my mom's relationship uh, that I had with her through that lens, I was able to have a bit more compassion for her. And, you know, one of the things that I used to get upset about is how she always wanted to tell me how, you know, me and my brothers and sisters were the cause of her problems, which made me in turn just push her further away and be like, well, you don't understand how much you were a problem to me. And we just kept kind of going, you know, head to head on that. And we wouldn't listen to each other. And I, I started to start to listen to her and I realized that I had to kind of parent her in a way. And I, I started to treat her how I wish she would have treated me. And when I did that, like when I started to see her battles and like really listen to what she was having issues with. And, um, yeah, I just, I, 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 uh, I just, I can't even believe how awesome our relationship is now because as soon as I started to listen to her, she started to listen to me. And now like it's, we have an amazing relationship. I love my mother very much. And, uh, same thing with my stepdad. Like I started to look at it through that lens as well, where, um, yeah, I mean, I just, I look at, a hurt little boy who's living in this like 70 year old who's like just mean and angry all the time. And then I think about all the trauma he was probably put through as a kid. And when I start to let go of that entitlement, it helps me to see them for who they are. And uh, that leads to more compassion. So the, the more you can open up for compassion for your parents, and I'm not saying that's possible with every single situation, but that is the best way to, to start healing any type of relationships like that in, in my experience. I think there's a bookend to that as well. And I love what Ryan said about there's nothing written into the fabric of the, the universe that says I'm entitled to good parents. But also, they aren't entitled to your time, your attention, your resources, your kindness, your caring. In fact, if they've forsaken you for so long... You don't have to keep giving those resources to someone else. You can still love them, but you might have to love that person from a distance. So in this true crime documentary that we just watched. (laughs) It's called The (laughs) X-Files. I think it's called like Chasing the Ghost or something like that, but you'll find it. It's on Netflix. Really, really fascinating. But w- one, of the, um, one of the things that united all the people that got conned once they found out they were conned is they all had a difficult time getting over it. And it wasn't because of the money they lost. It was because of the fact that they got conned. And everyone had this story going on that says, what I experienced only happens to stupid people. How could I have been so stupid? 
how could I have fallen for that? I'm saying it. <laughs> how could I have been so stupid, you know? And sometimes when, when we suffer heartbreak or disappointment or setback, it's tempting to subscribe to this narrative that says, if I were a good person, if I were a smart person, if I were the right kind of person, this would have never happened to me. And the fact that I'm in this situation means that I'm fundamentally wrong in a way that normal, sane, healthy people are not. But the temptations had it right when they said, everybody plays the fool. No exception to the rule, right? The rich and the poor, the smart, the successful, the pretty people, the people whose unique form of beauty is not celebrated, everybody, right? Like everybody plays the fool, everybody gets their heart broken, everybody has moments. And I would encourage you as you go through this process to perhaps be friendly to yourself and maintain contact with yourself and forgive yourself for even being in this situation where you have to make a choice like that in order to be healthy. Everyone has their own version and variation of stories like that because we each have an evolutionary journey where we have to grow into the best version of ourselves and none of us are free of having to go through our own version of hell. There's nothing wrong with you for having to go through this. And you can always take the perspective of asking yourself, how can I learn from this without carrying around the baggage that says, I should have known better than that. Mm -hmm. That's all I'll say. That was beautiful. We're gonna get someone from the side over here. Hi. Howdy, what's your name? Pua. Pua. My name is Pua. Sorry, I'm very nervous. It's because I'm a huge fan. Um, okay. We don't have any fans, so it's okay. <laughs> Just people. Um, I have a question, or I guess I need some help. Um, so in my household, my husband is not a consumer, but he's a huge hoarder. And um, he has a hard time letting things go. Whereas I'm the consumer, but I want to let things go very easily. And I also do all the organizing in our home. And so going back to what you said earlier, TK, about you don't want to change them, you want them to learn for themselves. But I still get resentful when I'm the one that's moving that box, you know? And so I guess I just want to know if you guys could give me some encouragement to either change how I feel or change him. <laughs> um, yeah, but that's it. <laughs> Because I'm tired of being mad at him. <laughs> true crime, true crime. <laughs> Someone just yelled true crime. <laughs> like we're going to see Pua on an upcoming serial podcast. Coming soon, The Hoarder. <laughs> Four-part series on Netflix. <laughs> so there, there are two things here. There's one the my husband is a hoarder part and the kind of judgment that goes along with that. And then there is the two, his hoarding might be fine for him, but it seems like the responsibility to manage it, move it around and so on falls on me. And both of those are very important. So the first part, I think one of the hardest things to do in life is to articulate beliefs that we ourselves do not share. And 
I think it's very important to not be too confident about your ability to define what someone else believes, right? You you want to be able to define another person's beliefs in a way that an actual believer of that would listen to and say, yeah, that's about right. So if I'm a socialist and I'm defining capitalists, if I'm a capitalist and I'm defining socialists, can I articulate it in such a way that someone who actually believes this thing I don't believe would listen to it and say, yeah, hey, you explain me pretty well. If you practice this, in most cases, you will find that no matter how good you are at that, people who actually believe it will be like, kind of, right? Like, like, that's mostly right, but I would add this bit of nuance. Why is that an important concept? It's important because it's easy to take our labels like hoarder, which has a very personal meaning for us, and then impose that on someone else who could be doing exactly what they want to do and could be feeling a lot of joy with it and say, well, you're a hoarder too, because if I were you and I did what you did, I would be so anxious about all the clutter in my life. Josh and I talk about this all the time, right? Clutter for me may not be clutter for him and vice versa. And so the first step I would take is aiming to connect with him rather than aiming to correct him. And I would get curious about his clutter, not as some game of manipulation, not as some pretentious sort of thing, but you're never going to be able to help him nor are you ever going to be able to inspire him if you are not understanding of the underlying fundamental reasons for why he wants to hang on, those, hang on to those things. It could be possible that if he opens up and tells you the story behind these things, you might even say, oh, you know what? You should keep that stuff. Let's just find a better way to deal with the space that it takes up. Or you might find that when he begins to tell his story about why these things are there, he might even begin to see for himself where there's room to change things around. Ryan shared on a recent episode this really powerful practice I hadn't thought about before where he says him and Mariah will sometimes get together and they'll, say, and they'll ask each other, what are the things you want to work on in your life, right? And it's very easy to be like, here's what I think you need to work on. <laughs> But that produces a lot of defensiveness and, and a whole lot of other baggage. But when you ask the other person, you might find that that thing about them that's been irritating you is also irritating them too. And the thing they need the most is not for someone else to give them information that they already know, but for someone else to know that what they really need is support because they're struggling to deal with the things that are irritating you too. And I think it's very important to start with curiosity and connection before we fool around with any efforts to try to get people to behave differently. I believe it was John Maxwell who said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. You gotta connect first. The second thing, it sounds like the problem isn't so much that he has this stuff. The problem is there's no boundary line between who takes care of his stuff. And I think we can all relate to a sense of, hey, you can do what you want, but don't make me pay for it, right? And it sounds like there's a lack of a boundary there, whether it's intentional or unintentional, whether it's just somebody being unconscious or things having never been talked about. But I think the way I would handle that is to just have a conversation about what you need with the space. Don't moralize, don't make it about what's right, what's wrong, what he should do, but you can just make it about your needs and your preferences. Here's what I need to be able to do in this space. And I respect your right to have whatever you need, but I find myself in these situations where I have to clean up after you when I've never made an agreement with you to do that. 
what's the best way I can both support your needs and make sure I'm not taking care of things and managing things and being the maintenance person for things that don't belong to me. And I think that leads to a different type of conversation like, hey, man, you need to get rid of this stuff. What's wrong with you, dude? You know what I mean? Yeah, that uh, the, the meeting, the meeting, it's on the calendar that my wife and I have uh, every month. We started doing this a few months ago. It's called a life dinner. And it really is like a sitting down and like hashing out, um, yeah, where we're going in life, what we want to do, what are our directions that we're trying to head in. And it's a real, it's a great mechanism of support and it never turns into here's what I think you should do it. And, and that's really important that, it, that it doesn't turn into that. I think that's a great idea. Like to ask your husband to have a life dinner once a month or maybe it's once a quarter, whatever works for you and him. But you know, ultimately when it comes to the issue right now today, um, you, you obviously can't change your husband, but you can change your relationship with that box. So you are choosing to move that box. And the question is, is he worth it? Like when you move that, is it worth moving that box every single day to be with him? I thought if Mariah was a hoarder and I had to move boxes every day, I think I'd move those boxes every day. I fucking love that woman. And you don't have to answer this with us right now, but, but th- that is what's going to help you change your relationship with that box. Because right now, your relationship is resentment. But if you're willing to do that, I don't think you're going to have to do it every single day for the rest of your life. But if you did, like, is that too much for you? Or is it like, man, I really love this man. I'm gonna, I am going to move this box every day for him. Pua, can I ask you a question? What bothers you about his stuff? I guess it's because I'm on this journey to have less stuff. I have four kids. I'm trying to simplify my life. And he, the stuff that he has are from his childhood that he right. doesn't look at. He doesn't want to look at because he doesn't have time. Sure. And I have to make space. Or I... It, it's the clutter that's stressful to me. Like yeah. now that I see it, it's stressful, and that's why I keep moving it. Why do you want to simplify your life? Because <laughs> it's uh, not inherently good. Just like your your husband isn't inherently wrong for having things. Mm-hmm. And I hear a lot of I hear a lot of upset and discontent, and I'm really sorry because I can I can feel it in you, and I felt that same thing. Mm-hmm. There's a tension between you and this person you love. And if things were just a little bit different, then maybe things would be fine. But really, this is all just furniture. We're moving around yeah. furniture right now, um, literally and, and figuratively. Mm-hmm. Um, you change the, you know, if you paint a, um, a house that is rotting with termites, mm-hmm makes the house look a little bit better, but it doesn't actually get to the root of what's going on here. Yeah. And so I'd like to try to figure out what's really going on behind all of this. What's going on with his attachment, his unwillingness to let go of anything that, by the way, it's only clutter because it doesn't add value to his life. Now, he could be here. Is he here right now? No, he's not. No, of course not. (laughs) 
He wanted to come. So we could say whatever we want about yes, him. Yes, you fine. could. Let me record it for him. <laughs> I would not say anything I wouldn't say to his face, but here, here's, what I would, um, here's what I would say to him if, if he were here is, why, why are you holding on to these things? But no, I wouldn't do so. I hear the judgment in your voice, and I totally get it. But remember that judgment is just a mirror that reflects the insecurities of the judge. And so when I judge my wife or my daughter or my friends for something that they are doing or something that they have done, what I'm really saying is that doesn't align with something that I want, right? It's showing my own expectations, my own preferences, my own opinions, my own beliefs about that. It doesn't make them true and it doesn't make me right and him wrong or vice versa, right? And so... You don't have to answer this question right now, but I'd really like you to figure out why are you simplifying? What's on the other side of that? What are you actually making room for? Yeah, a less cluttered house is nice, but a less cluttered house isn't going to repair your relationship. Thanks for your question. Thank you. By the way, a cluttered house might ruin the relationship. That's a... A different topic, though. Got another question over here. Howdy. What's your name? Uh, Robert Ian. I'm a new listener of yours in the last, like, four and five months, and I, I, I listen on Spotify. I really love it. And what I really like is how you kind of give people the tools to kind of feel comfortable in their own skin, kind of like as they're moving through all these different changes. And, you know, this is the first symposium I've been to, and it's – I guess my question is – it's a real dynamic. I, I just see a dynamic here that's really interesting. Do, do any of you, uh, are you on any other podcasts where you like go out into like other people's networks and then talk to them and then bring them back into yours? Because it's a, it's a really neat dynamic or do you, cause I know you go out and speak and stuff from your website and thing, but do, do you do that? Cause I'd love to listen maybe from time to time to some of you on like other podcasts and just tapping into other things. Cause it, there's a real energy that comes out here and the questions are fantastic, especially like this, this last one you just did. So I, I'm really interested in the process cause I, I really learn a lot about from that. So you, you want to hear us on, on another podcast talking about psychedelics. <laughs> <laughs> I'm game for whatever. Dude, you missed an opportunity. True crime <laughs> podcast, man. <laughs> So as, as many I, podcasts as TK does, he's never been on a true crime podcast. <laughs> I hope he's just not the subject of one. So Ryan and I have joked around about starting a podcast called Nicodemus at Night, where, where we just like, we record it late at night, and we just talk about all the weird stuff. We talk about aliens and, yeah, all the interesting stuff. But <laughs> yeah. How the pyramids were made? No. TK does a lot more interviews than, than we do. Uh, you can just go to his Twitter feed, TK underscore colon. Make sure you have the underscore in there. Otherwise, you will be misled. But, but that's only because <laughs> you guys have been there, done that with everything. I'd be like, oh, wow, good morning, America, just call. You're like, yeah, we did that like five times, bro. Like, I'm like the new kid that's like, whoa, you mean someone wants to interview us? You're like, uh, listen, bro, we've been doing this for 12 years. We kind of, we chill mode right now. But you can find all of our previous interviews, uh, theminimalists.com slash media, if you want to find a bunch of them over there. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with you, Robert. It's great to go out and get into a different world and then bring the subject to it. 
recently the three of us did an interview with oh i forget the name of the podcast josh will remember it's, it was the anti-capitalist podcast Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Chelsea was her name. Mal, what was the name of that podcast? That was Chelsea Fagan with The Financial Diet. Yes. Uh, so They hated us on that. Well, <laughs> yes, that's true. Um, but when we, when we ended that podcast, it was almost like, def- not, not defeating, but like, um, I forget how what TK was wording it, but essentially he was like, oh, man, like she was really kind of coming at us. Like, th- did that go well? And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, that went great. Like, I love when we can bring this to a different ideology, especially when it's bumps up against something, because it gives us an opportunity to do one or two things, either change our perspective on what we're doing, or it kind of gives us an opportunity to show people how like, you know, this is a, this is something that we feel very good about, you know, talking about and and kind of pressing up against something with. So yeah, when that podcast came out, they, her audience hated us. Um, but I, it's still one of my favorite podcasts we have done in, in like the recent years because it was, it was something so different. And yeah, I, I, I think it, we actually sharpen ourselves when we do things like that. I remember Ryan on our fifth tour, we were doing this. Actually, no, it was maybe, oh, it was even before that. We were, it was like our third or fourth tour. We were up in, Alberta, Canada, uh, and we were speaking at the largest mall in North America. (laughs) The West Edmonton Mall. It's bigger than the Mall of America. It's this huge mall, and I remember getting um, veiled threats from people when they're like, "Why, why in the hell would the minimalist be speaking at a mall? Like, where do you want us to speak? At a Zen sanctuary? You want us to go up to monks and tell them to live with less? And I think the same thing is true with with someone like that. When someone has a, a different point of view from ours, I think the difference is we don't come to these conversations with a particular dogma, and that's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just every time I pick up dogma, it really weighs me down. Well, I'll say one thing about that, that podcast experience. So first, I thought Chelsea was very respectful, very professional, and she asked us a lot of good questions, and I enjoy that conversation, and I go back. Um, I think it was difficult for all of us because it was, as she said, the first time she interviewed three people at once. So when you interview three people at once, it's kind of like she puts out a question, and then it's like, you go, I go, Ryan go, next question. As opposed to if she wants to follow up on something that you said, I'm already talking, and if she wants to follow up on something I said, Ryan's already going. And so it's very difficult to get something that's conversational, and I think it felt a little bit more like stilted and, and, and scripted to everybody because the the nature of that type of uh, conversation. But I thought the questions were really good, and, I, and I, it made me better in the following way. There's a presumed understanding I've always had of minimalism from the first time I talked with you guys that I don't think is obvious. It's obvious to me, not because I'm smarter than everybody else, but it's obvious to me because of my background in a way that I think needs to be spelled out a little bit more explicitly. And that conversation made me a better communicator because even though I thought we articulated the philosophy well, her audience walked away with a perception that they had at the beginning of the conversation, which was, this is a privileged message. 
And one of the interesting things about privilege is when you have conversations with people that are poor, it yields very different insights than when you merely have academic conversations about people who are poor. And there are certain understandings that you gather when you're working with people in the inner city, working with people that are struggling. And one of those insights is you realize that even though it's easy to think that minimalism is about people who suffer from too much money, or minimalism is only the unique domain of the rich, the wealthy, and the well-off who have too much stuff, you find that everyone in every demographic has something that they're striving to let go of, not because you're telling them they need to do it, but they're saying, I need to let go of this. So people with no possessions, they've got things they're trying to let go of, like stories like, nobody will ever love me. I will never have anybody who wants to help someone like me. I can never have a chance to get out of the neighborhood that I grew up in because my father is this way or because my mother said this to me. I will never be better than my past. I can never be more than a drug dealer. I am destined to go to prison by the time I'm 19. These are very powerful stories that you have to work together with people on to help them unpack and you can't do it overnight. And these stories come from people, they don't have money. They don't have any physical goods that they're trying to figure out how to get rid of. But in order for them to take a step towards health, to take a step towards wellness, they've got some story of unworthiness, some story of self-hate that they're trying to let go of. And I don't think I communicated that well. And I don't think I understood her audience and their sensitivities and their background well enough to know that that was something that needed to be drawn out. And so the gift that the anger and frustration of her audience was to me is that going forward, when I communicate minimalism, I can communicate it with much greater simplicity and empathy. And I'm willing to take that L and have everybody in her audience hate me forever in order to get that lesson because the power that it gives me to have a positive impact with whoever else I meet in the future that will never watch that show and hate me because of it. That preaches. Before we wrap things up, I want to bring some of our team up here on the stage. Danny and Jordan and Mallory and Sean. Let's get them up here real quick. (laughs) Wait, 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 wait. They don't deserve any applause. (laughs) It's just us. (laughs) No, I want to get them up here and uh, give them a big thanks. Um, Yeah, come on up. Hugs, you guys. I I hope you all will stick around afterward for hugs. They are free and transferable. Um, This is not our whole team, but a very important part of our team. We have Professor Sean here. He's our audio engineer. Yeah. Jordan O'More is our talented filmmaker. We have Danny. You can TikTok that, Danny. Yeah. Danny Unknown helps us out with video, photos, all the beautiful stuff to make the podcast look great. And of course, the best voice in podcasting, Malabama. (laughs) We brought some books for y'all. If you can't afford one, please grab one on the way out. They're autographed. And uh, if you want to pay something, that really helps us with all of our costs and our staff and the venues. And you may have noticed that this is the Final Sunday Symposium. 
yeah. Yeah. We're here right now, though. And so people, a lot of people have asked, is this, is this the end? Why is it ending? Well, it's just the end of a chapter. And so we've done a ton of live events, hundreds of live events. We certainly hope to do more in the future. I don't know what the future holds, but we hope you will be there for that. We hope you'll stick around afterward for some hugs. Make sure you grab a book on the way out. If you want to pay something great, if you want to just take one for free, you're welcome to do that. I wanted to end today, since this is the final Sunday symposium, with some one-minute wisdom. So I'm going to grab my mic stand here, and we're going to do a little reading. Oh, it's back. (laughs) Thank you, Alabama. I thought this was an appropriate way to to end Sunday Symposium. And if you're on our email list, we'll let you know next time we're doing something live. Oh, by the way, one of the reasons that we wanted, we want to refigure this thing because personally, I hate charging you to be here, but it pays for the venue, pays for the staff, pays for all that. So if anyone has a venue that holds five, six, seven hundred people that we can let people in for free, you let me know and... uh, We'll figure that out. Just uh, send us an email. This is called recognition. As the master grew old and infirm, the disciples begged him not to die. Said the master, if I did not go, how would you ever see? What is it we fail to see when you are with us? They asked. But the master would not say. When the moment of his death was near, they said, What is it we will see when you are gone? With a twinkle in his eye, the master said, All I did was sit on the river bank, handing out river water. After I'm gone, I trust you'll notice the river. Thanks for being here. Thank you.